our Lord. Good evening and please do be seated. If you would keep your, um, your service orders open to page 13, that would be very helpful. Page 13, the reading from Mark 11. And the other thing that you might find helpful is to open up the outline, uh, because I've put some passages that we'll refer to uh, in the outline. It's, it's the page before the last one in your bulletin. Start with prayer. Almighty God, we pray now for all us who are gathered here this evening in your name. We pray that we might truly be nourished by you, that we might be built up and grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and so what we're doing is we're we're going back to a section of Mark's Gospel that we skipped over earlier in our series. A section in which we hear of the wonderful entry of Jesus as God's King into Jerusalem. And this is a passage which, like so many other passages of Mark's Gospel, most clearly will show its significance when we see how it connects to the Old Testament to the big history of God's salvation. To understand this, we start off right back in the Garden of Eden, where we find Adam and Eve living under God's blessing and his rule as their Lord and their King. Sounds good, doesn't it? What went wrong? Well, Adam, if you remember, refused to submit to God's good and righteous rule and in the face of temptation decided that he would overrule God's good command. He would act as if he himself were king instead of God. And predictably, we then go on to see the consequences of that kind of rebellion as he stood naked before his God, condemned to a life of of thorns and sweat and sorrow and death, cut off, exiled forever from God's place of blessing and of rule. Yet it gets worse still. For as the scriptures unfold, we see generation after generation walking in exactly the same footsteps as Adam, rejecting God's rule as king and living as if they were king themselves, and in turn facing the consequences that that incurs. Even, even those towards to whom God had drew near, his chosen people in Abraham, those upon whom he had lavished such blessing and grace and mercy, even they overruled him and walked in sinful disobedience. Even they would ultimately face exile and the rule of their enemies over them. Yet, even in the midst of the depths of God's judgment on mankind's rebellion, 
God had promised a day. A day when not only his judgment, but also the rebellion would cease forever. A day when God would come and save them from the hands of their enemies and bring them once again under his blessing and rule as their God and their King. By this point in Mark's Gospel, his disciples already know that this is what Jesus has come to do. He is God's promised King, his Christ. In chapter 8, you might remember Peter confess, you are the Christ, and, and then Jesus telling them to tell no one about this. Since then, Jesus has been continuing on his journey towards Jerusalem to be that Christ, the King. And today, it's time for him to tell everyone who he is. Today, he is going to show unmistakably that he is God's promised Savior and King. But he does so not merely with words. He does so by alluding to to three wonderful pictures taken from the Old Testament, pictures which point forward in promise to that coming of the Christ, the King. Let's look at them. First of all, he pictures himself as the great king who would come from Judah's tribe, the one to whom all the nations of the earth would bring their obedience. You might remember that when Jacob was dying, he gathered his 12 sons who those who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, and he gave them his prophetic blessings. Listen to the promise and the blessing he gave to his son Judah. I printed it in your outline. It's Genesis 49 and verse 10. He said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Do you see? Do you see what Jesus is picturing Here is this promised king who would come from the tribe of Judah who has tied up his colt. And now here is Jesus who sends his disciples to go and untie the colt and bring it to him. This is verse 2, Mark chapter 11, verse 2. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Do you see the picture? He's saying, I am the king that is promised from the tribe of Judah to whom all the nations will bring obedience. Now the second image he gives us is fulfilled as he then rides upon this royal steed. And so shows himself to also be the true king from David's line, the one whose kingdom will have no end. You might remember again that God had given promises to King David. God had promised that he would raise up David's son after him and establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
And when it came for the time for David to die and pass on the rule to his son, the way he signified the king who would follow him was by having his son Solomon ride on his own royal mule and go to be anointed king. That's the second quote in your outline from 1 Kings. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehadiah, and the Kerithites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. However, as we well know, Solomon the king died and was gathered to his fathers and his throne by the time of Jesus was, well, it had fallen into the hand of his enemies. Because you see, although yes, Solomon was a son of David, he was not that son of whom the promise spoke. The promised son of David was still awaited. Until that is, Mark chapter 11, verse 7. His disciples brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. It's our second image, do you see? He is the king of Israel, great David's greatest son, whose kingdom will have no end. Then for the third image, Jesus goes on to show that he is also the king who comes to save his captive people from the rule of their enemies. The promised Messiah who would come and bring lasting peace and justice to his people. And he does this by starting the last leg of his journey to Jerusalem by riding a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so unmistakably fulfills the words which are spoken by the prophet Zechariah. We heard them read earlier. The prophet Zechariah was writing to God's people as they had started to come back into the land but found themselves still under the rule of their enemies. And he gives them hope in this place that one day this king would come and set them free from their enemies and the consequence of all their sin. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, he said. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's the third image. He's the promised king who will save his people from the hands of their enemies and bring that reign of justice and peace forevermore. And now for, for the crowds who are traveling with Jesus up to Jerusalem, as, as they see this, as people soaked in the Old Testament, it would have been crystal clear. How did they respond? Or how does one respond if one finds oneself in the presence of a king. I remember I once found myself in the presence of the Queen of England. I'd, I'd gone to a concert and, and the Queen turned up in her royal box to listen to the concert. Oh. 
and those who were present, when, when they realized that she was the queen, they, they honored her as the queen. They, they turned to face her. Those with flags waved them before her. And, and the orchestra led us all in singing the national anthem, God Save the Queen. That was the right thing to do. We, we honored her rightly as the queen of that country. And in a, and in a similar way, we're going to see those with Jesus now rightly honor him as God's king. I'll show you three things that they do to show that. The first thing they do is they take their cloaks and they spread them before him on the road. If you look on your outline, you realize that that's exactly what their ancestors had done some 800 years previously when King Jehu had been anointed king. And likewise, others, Mark says, others presumably those who had no cloak to spread, they cut branches from the field and they spread them before him as well. The second way they honor him as king is by what they shout out as he continues. They shout out words from Psalm 118, the psalm from which we read earlier. Now, if you know this psalm, you know it is a psalm that is dripping with references to the coming Christ, the Messiah. It pictures him as, as the right hand of the Lord, the one who had saved his people from Egypt and now came to enter victorious through the gates of the Lord. The particular part of the psalm that they start shouting out is a part where, of the psalm where we hear the people call out to that saviour king saying, save us, or in Hebrew, Hosanna. Verse 9 of Mark's Gospel. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the third thing I want to show you is that they, they continue to honor him by adding their own words, words which come not from the Psalm or the Old Testament, but words that show that yes, they understand he is God's King, come to restore. The promised kingdom. This is verse 10, they say. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're rightly honoring him as their king, aren't they? Yet to continue honoring him as the king is going to be more than just outwardly pledging honor to him as king. It is also going to mean inwardly obeying him and submitting to his rule as king. Let me tell you, it would not be very long before the nation, led by the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, will, will start to organize themselves to reject his rule as king. It's just what Jesus had said back when Peter confessed him as Christ. For you see, it is one thing to call on a king to save you, but it is another to ask him to rule over you. You may have seen in the newspapers in, in recent months, uh, Syrians calling out to, to world leaders to come and save them. But it would be a mistake to assume that the Syrians also want these foreign leaders to rule them. And for Syria, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because foreign leaders have no right to rule over Syria, do they? 
But that's not the case with Jesus. For as God's king, actually, he does have the right to rule over us. So that means that rightly responding to him doesn't just mean calling upon him to save us, as important as that is. It also means submitting to him as our king. It means reversing Adam's rebellion in the garden. It means no longer living as if we were, our, were king. In fe- instead, confessing Jesus Christ to be Lord. But I know that that is hard. But how could it possibly be any other way? Would we cry out, save us, O God, but then don't rule us? The very reason we need to be saved is because we have rejected his rule over us so many times. So when he comes, he comes not just to serve us as our saviour, but to rule us as our rightful and righteous king. My dear brothers and sisters, I know as well as you do that that when we think of this, somehow the deadly deceit of the serpent is, is still echoing in our ears, isn't it? And I know there may be things which, which we are doing, things we do publicly or, or things we do in secret, which, which we know are in rebellion to God and his good and righteous rule. Things we do which which we know that if we are to honour him as our saviour and our king, we will have to stop. And and, and I know that, I know the old Adam in us keeps jumping up and trying to tell us to resist submitting to our saviour as our king, even though we know that is the very height of foolishness itself. And after all, after we know that the nation of the Jews did no differently, did they? Ultimately, They put to death the Lord of life on the cross rather than submit to him as their king. Pilate in the judgment hall puts it very starkly. Then what shall I do with a man you call the king of the Jews? And Adam's fallen seed rebelliously replies, crucify him crucify him. Yet I want you to also know this. I want you to know that although, yes, for them, that was the very height of sinful rebellion against God and his king. For God, it was to be the very triumph of his amazing and wonderful love that as they sent his sinless saviour to die, he would do so, bearing the sins of his people. So that even those who had crucified him could find forgiveness and be made part of his kingdom. My dear brothers and sisters, it is this promise that our Savior King still makes to us today. Every one of us, No matter how terribly we have disobeyed him, no matter what we have done against him and his righteous rule, 
he calls us. He's, he calls us to end that foolish and futile rebellion and surrender to him as our good and gracious king. And he promises that as we do that, he will give to us the full royal pardon for all our rebellion. The pardon he purchased with his own blood in love for us upon the cross. And he promises that then in him we will find ourselves once more where Adam once was. Again under the wonders of his blessing and his good and righteous rule. Inheritors together with him of the eternal kingdom of righteousness and of peace forevermore. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise because in your amazing and wonderful love you sent your beloved Son that he might bear our sins and suffer for them upon the cross. And we give you thanks that you sent him to be our king, that in him we could be restored again into your blessing and your rule. We pray that even now you would be working in us to turn us from our rebellion and cause us to submit to him as your rightful king. Pray, Father, that, that by your spirit you would give us strength to turn away from the sins and the things we do in rebellion against you. And that you would grant to us the wonderful forgiveness you promise through the death of your Son. Pray, Father, that you would then teach us to live all our lives as his people, under his blessing and his rule, and to his eternal praise and glory. Amen.